Sky Jathani writes that centuries ago, the word vocation, meaning literally a calling, applied only to the clergy. The clergy alone had a vocation, while everyone else just worked hard. Martin Luther disagreed, the Puritans added to the conversation, and here we are in the 21st century. What is the theology of vocation for today, for the postmodern generation? Sky Jathani is an author, editor, speaker, consultant, and pastor. Since 2004, he served on the editorial team of Christianity Today's Leadership Journal and is currently the group's executive editor. Sky has been a sought-after consultant for groups facing the challenges of today's global cultural contexts, like the Luzon Movement and the White House Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. Sky is also the co-host of the Phil Vischer Podcast, a weekly show that's a unique blend of cultural and theological insights and comical back and forth. Sky is ordained in the Christian and Missionary Alliance, a Protestant denomination established in 1887. In our conversation recorded at Christianity Today's offices, Sky confessed that leaving the pastorate after six years of full-time ministry in a church and going to a nine-to-five job gave him a new perspective on what life is like, nine-to-five for a church congregation. So you had an interesting experience because for how many years you were in the pulpit? You were the preacher. Oh, probably six or seven. Okay. And then you left that full time. Right. And got a real job. Oh, wait. <laughs> got another job. Or was it the other way around? <laughs> uh, not working uh, in the church full time, but um, tell us what you do now. I work with Christianity Today. I've, I've been connected to CT for a number of years in different roles, and now I'm the executive editor of the Leadership Media Group. Okay, Christianity Today magazine. And um, how long has that been around? CT or leadership? CT. CT's been around since 1956, yeah. started by Billy Graham. Yeah, so it's got a heritage. Mm-hmm. What do you like about your role at, at the leadership end? Oh, I get to interact with church leaders all over the country and sometimes globally, and I before I took the role, I was thinking about going back for my doctorate, partly because I just enjoy learning and wanted to kind of be exposed to ideas outside my congregation. And then I started at leadership, and I realized I was kind of getting a doctoral education mm-hmm. without officially getting a doctoral education. So I learn a ton in this role mm-hmm. through the people I meet and the churches and ministries I get to interact with, and I just am very stimulated by that. Mm-hmm. Love it. Well, so you went from the pulpit to showing up at an office, and um, your perspective changed a little bit. Yeah. You know, I think it's probably a healthy thing for everyone who preaches regularly to take a sabbatical at least and sit in the pew. I, I found it, it deeply impacted the way I heard and then ultimately preached messages. So, um, Is this like bring your pastor to work day or yeah, something? Yeah, something like that. It's, <laughs> um, it's, it's sort of like when I volunteer in my kid's elementary school and I have to sit in that little chair and I realize what it's like to be a second grader again <laughs> or a fifth grader and the stresses they have. And it's just it's good to get out of your environment and see things from a different perspective. Um, so the thing that struck me as I'm listening to the sermons week after week was, and these are my colleagues or my friends at the church, you know, I don't fault them in any way, but I realized that they and I had been preaching with a certain bias and assumption in place that didn't take into account how most of the people in our church spend most of their lives. And I began tracking in my own life 
where was my time allocated now that I was working 40, 50 hours a week outside the church? And how much was uh, family time and just chores around the house and, and work? And, and I realized I had about 12% of my time that was flexible, that I could read a book or watch a movie or do whatever I wanted with. And for the most part, what I heard in the pulpit were the pastors targeting that 12% of my time. You know, you should stop doing some of the things you really enjoy and give more of your time and energy to do the work that God really values. Mm-hmm. And there was nothing mentioned about what I was doing 40 hours a week or what other callings I may have that is relevant to God's kingdom. And so the next time I finally got up to preach again, because I was sort of in the rotation still, I preached about that. And in this predominantly Anglo-suburban church, I got amens coming from the, from the people as I apologized for not really understanding the value of what they were doing apart from their engagement in the church. And that was the beginning a number of years ago of opening my eyes to the way we have abandoned or just ignored a theology of vocation and what a burden that puts upon people in the church. And I think it explains at least in part why a lot of younger people Hmm. are not engaging the institutional church the way earlier generations did. Well, I guess I want to jump there. Like, why, as you've been processing this and thinking about this, you know, what did you start thinking then is missing from the church? And what is missing for the people in the pew? That's a big question. Uh, There's a lot there. Um, Part of it, from the church side, from the leader's point of view, and even theologically, is for at least the last century, the American church has been dominated by a view of the future that really destroys any ability to value what people do in the present. So if you believe that everything in this world is going to be destroyed, nothing will endure, then the only thing that can really matter is ministry, because ministry is about saving souls, and souls are eternal, and that's all that matters. So being an accountant or a dentist or a gardener or whatever can really have no lasting eternal value. And if you buy into that theology, then it makes sense that the church would almost narrow its focus on one little activity, which is evangelism, maybe discipleship. So that's a theological bias that's caused this, but institutionally, the church has also, at least the last 30 to 40 years, modeled itself, in evangelical circles at least, on the American corporation. And that model says, you know, there's a leader, a CEO at the top who has a vision, and they rally everybody to that vision to accomplish that one goal. And when the church adopted that model, rather than viewing the church as a family or viewing the church as a community that's gathered with diverse gifts and callings, if it sees itself as a corporation, then the only vision that can really matter, the only calling that can really matter, is the one that's issued from the pulpit, from the It's kind of the company values. Exactly. So that comes into the church, and then pastors begin viewing the people in the pew not as their sisters and brothers or sheep to shepherd or or, um, the people of God that we meet together with really, but they're the employees. I mean, this is crude, but that's essentially Ouch, how it comes. this hurts. They're volunteer employees, but they're employees, and the goal is to rally as many of them as possible to accomplish the work that the senior pastor believes the church is supposed to do. And when you're in any kind of business, you don't tend to get into the personal lives of your employees. You're looking at, are you accomplishing the work that you've been hired to do? And so a lot of pastors have come to view their people as, are they giving their money? Are they giving their time? Are they giving their energy to the handful of tasks that the institutional church says is important? And that, I think, is what a lot of younger people are reacting to. Uh, This is not based on my research, but that of others. They're showing that across the board, younger Americans don't value institutions. 
And you can see why. And we've seen the meltdown of Wall Street, big businesses, Enron, scandals in the government, scandals in the church, capital C, the Catholic Church scandals, other things. This younger generation thinks that the bigger an institution is, the more inherently dishonest and corrupt it must be. So they don't give their time, money, and energy to institutions. So if that's what they see heralded from the pulpit, rather than what we can get into later, a more nuanced understanding of engagement, they're likely to not give their lives. We just did an article at Leadership Journal in the last issue from a a 20-something Christian. Our whole issue was on money, and he wrote us an article called Why I Won't Give My Money to Your Church. Hmm. So if you're trying to build an institutional mindset, this younger generation is going to react against that. I think that's what's happening. Well, they also don't care about money as much. They're happier with a scaled-back way of living, you know, compared to their parents, and so they're not about achieving you know, they have to have a different kind of a goal. That's right. And when you look at when the megachurch phenomenon really took off in the United States, which was the late 70s, early 80s, it was with the boomer generation reaching adulthood. And in that generation, big equaled successful. It equaled um, credibility. So these big churches were seen as credible and established, and it drew a lot of baby boomers. With my generation, I think those younger than me, like I said, big institution represents corrupt. And so they're looking for small... Um, less institutional, less hierarchical forms of church. And it it comes from that mindset of we don't have to have big. We don't have to have tons of money. We don't have to have a big footprint. And also in the era of of digital reality and social media, of YouTube and Twitter, you can have a big impact without a big institution. Mm -hmm. And the dynamics are changing. Yeah. But when you talk about the church becoming more like an institution and its um, maybe governance and framework and values and so forth. Um, they are the what we would call the Jesus values. They mm-hmm. are attributed to God's word and maybe even a theological framework that's been long time held. And so how, how do you get away from that when it's all about Jesus and God's kingdom? Right. Um, well, I'm not anti-institution by any means. I think the, the idea that all institutions are bad is, is ridiculous. It's, it's not, that's not the case. The question is what values are driving that institution. Um, I think we have, particularly in, in more affluent Anglo-evangelicalism, one of the dominant unspoken values is efficiency. And so the idea is we're going to run the church efficiently and, and, and run the institution efficiently. And what that does when taken to an extreme is it, it again results in leadership viewing the people as a means to an end. How do we organize these people? How do we mobilize these people? How do we leverage their wealth, whatever it is? And that's what I think the younger generation is reacting to. It isn't that it's institutional. There's an ironic thing going on where you're seeing the growth of Anglican churches right now among the youth that are highly structured, very liturgical. But why are they attracted to it? I think there's a difference between a church that's modeled on an old kind of historical system versus one that's seen as modeled on an American corporation. Mm, The values intrinsic to those things are different. Mm. So it isn't about necessarily big or small or even institutional or non-institutional. It's about what values are driving the organization. And how those are netted out in the framework. You know, same values, same theology and so forth, Mm -hmm. but how does it look? That's right.
Okay, so we we went off in a direction right away, <laughs> didn't we? Sorry. Um, I, I hear you talking about your own experience, um, you know, being in the pulpit and then being in the pew. Which, by the way, after you began, after you apologized to mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, to the folks at your church and and you're living in that community, has anything changed? Um, yeah, I mean, the ch- churches are you know they're fluid. Things are always changing. Um, you know, one of the challenges is is, is as churches are struggling to reach younger people, I think they're becoming more receptive to new ideas. And there is a growing awareness that um, we need to move beyond an institutional-centric view of of mission, which is where some of the missional movement is coming from. If that word is now overused, I apologize. But some of the way that's expressed is, well, we don't want it to be all about the institutional church. We want people out in their lives also engaging in mission. What I'm more interested in is helping people s- rethink the way they define mission itself, um, because that gets to that earlier point that if the only thing that matters is saving souls, then the only thing God can really care about is saving souls, in which case this whole creation, this whole world that he's made, he doesn't ultimately care about. He's just going to throw it all away, hit the reset button on the cosmos, and start over. There was sin in the garden, and then the plans changed, and now we're on plan B, C, exactly. or D, and... Yeah, and I, don't, it out. I don't think that's what Scripture teaches at all. I don't think we have a God who replaces. We have a God who redeems. And read differently or, or through that lens, I think it, we can read Scripture in a way that actually validates the diversity of callings that God has given to his people and not expect everyone to behave and act like a pastor or missionary all the time in order to make their life significant. That's where I'm more interested in putting the energy now. Well, and I'm wondering about these words sacred and secular. Like there's this great divide, and we may not really verbalize it that way, but mm-hmm. we live that way. And I think that's what you're talking about. Absolutely. That there's this this kind of unspoken or un, you know, unacknowledged ethos yeah. of, um, well, <laughs> I this is Christian work, and that's not. Right. Yeah. I think if you were probably to pull... Where'd that come from? Well, gosh, it comes... It's just part of the way we're wired as human beings. I mean, you look at religious expression throughout history and culture, there's sacred and there's profane. There's things that are important, there's things that's not important. You see that even in the Old Testament. There are sacred objects at the temple, and then there are just ordinary objects. There are sacred people, the priests, and there are ordinary people. And that mindset has been carried into New Testament religion to a degree as well, even though it's not what Jesus taught. You know, he said, I am the temple. You know, he breaks down those barriers. Mm-hmm. The curtain is torn. He was bringing something new. That's right. Yeah, new but wine, then but skins. then we got the rules of governance. So you've got right. so <laughs> the one, Gospels and you've got the rest. So there's well, this tension. One, There's a lot of places. We just can't live without rules, can we? No, we can't also live without hierarchy. We really want to know who's on top and who's on the bottom. So back in the fourth century, there was a bishop named Eusebius, and he presented the idea, which has dominated the church for thousands of years now, that there are two ways of life. He said there's the perfect way, which is that of the clergy, because they're devoting their lives to the things of heaven, the spiritual things. And then there's the permitted life, which is everyone else, the farmers and the butchers and the fishermen. So that model persisted for well over a thousand years in the church. There's the perfect life, the permitted life. There's the sacred, there's the, the profane or the, the mundane, the secular. And it wasn't until the Protestant Reformation that that idea came under significant um, revision and attack. And so folks like Luther and Calvin and others said, no, 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 no. It, it isn't only the clergy who are called by God to a good and holy work. Every Christian is called to good and holy work. 
Um, and so a new idea, which is kind of called the Protestant work ethic, developed in um, historical terms, where suddenly the butcher and the farmer said, wait a minute, my work is just as important and just as holy as the priest's um, because what I do is good, it helps my neighbor, it's honoring to God, it values his creation, and more than anything else, this is what Christ has called me to. And that's what we forget. It isn't the work that makes us valuable, it's the master who makes us valuable. Mm. And whatever he calls us to, that's significant work. And what's happened in the last couple centuries, once our theology shifted, uh, and we can get into why, our, the modern missionary movement, our view of the future, those kinds of things, we've abandoned a theology of vocation that came out of the Protestant uh, Reformation and have returned, ironically, to the old Catholic vision, which said, Ministry is the only thing that really matters, and those who devote their time entirely to ministry matter more than those who don't. And if you want your life to have any real significance or value, try to behave more like a minister. And we've completely gutted a theology of vocation that says your value is not rooted in what you do, but in who you are following. Mm. And so that's what I think we need to restore. Yeah, I think that's what interested me about this topic is that I... I actually myself had nowhere to go with this because I'm so indoctrinated myself, you know, in this great divide and and live that working for a Christian broadcasting company, you know, oh, that's just so great. You get to do that. Mm -hmm. And in my head, I'm thinking, and you work at an office with guys that are hitting on you and there's this swearing and there's all this and you know, there's no moral framework other than, you know, don't mm-hmm. steal the company's money. That's a tough job. And then, you know, you're supposed to live Jesus in that. Right. I don't have to do any of that. <laughs> yeah. You know, really. So, uh, you know, you, you talk about this idea from um, the Puritans about this, the high calling, the common calling and specific callings. Mm-hmm. I've changed their language a little bit because the Puritans were a little tough to to navigate. So those are my words for their ideas. But yeah, they had this more nuanced understanding of calling. We should say that the word vocation comes from the Latin word vocare, which means to call. So when we say calling or vocation, it really, it's rooted in a theological mm-hmm. idea that Christ calls people. He gives them a vocation. And the Puritans said there are multiple layers to this, and we occupy multiple vocations simultaneously. So our highest calling, this applies to every person, is to live in unity or communion with God. We are all invited into that relationship with Christ, and that's what is most significant. That's where we get our identity. That's where we get our value. Um, The fact that we are a child of God, redeemed and wholly loved by him, that's the top. Then they said we have a common calling that applies to all Christians in all places at all times. Things like love your neighbor, give to those who ask of you, don't commit murder, don't commit adultery, all the commands you read in Scripture, they apply all the time. You can't say, well, you know, I, I work for, um, you know, a secular broadcasting company, therefore my job requires me to be nasty and, and tell lies on the air or something like that, and then therefore I don't have to obey that command of Scripture. No, you do, because that command applies mm. to all of us all the time, common calling. But the third level of calling, and this is what we often abandon today, is specific calling. Apart from my communion with Christ, apart from my obedience to the general commands of Scripture, I have also been given a specific calling to be, for example, Amanda's husband or to be the father to my three children. You don't have that calling. 
I have that calling specific to me. And then I have a specific calling regarding work. I'm an ordained pastor. When I was in the church full-time, my calling was to shepherd those people, preach the gospel. Now I'm a writer and an editor. I have specific tasks there. And what the Puritans did so beautifully is they valued those specific callings and didn't say you should abandon that specific call so that you can do my specific call or or one specific call is better than another. And that's exactly the trap we've fallen into today, is because we don't have a nuanced theology of vocation, we pretty much are silent about specific callings and only emphasize common callings, what the Bible teaches all Christians to do all the time. Love your neighbor right. as yourself. So. And those are good things, obviously, but what ends up happening is we take the specific call of, say, evangelism or mission, and we make that applicable to all Christians equally, and then value those who are giving more of their time and energy to it than someone else. Think about who gets celebrated in most of our churches, and you get an idea of what we on the ground actually think about callings versus what we might articulate, we believe. Who would those people be? Well, in my church, it's it's the people who are giving their full-time energy to either church or missions work, and they should be honored. People like me? And people like me. <laughs> right. Um, and that's fine, and those people should be honored. But what ends up happening, and I've seen this even with the college students I've worked with, um, what ends up getting communicated is that if you really want your life to matter, go into ministry. And then you wonder why 1,500 pastors a month drop out of ministry in the U.S. I think it's because we're attracting them to ministry for the wrong reason. Not because they're genuinely called by God or gifted, but because they're looking for significance. I was going to ask you, have you ever thought about idolatry as an issue in all this? Oh, that's exactly have, what it is. That we've idolized the full-time Christian worker. Yes, we have and, made And an I idol say that not wanting to offend anybody by saying that, because we certainly appreciate what those people do and, and what their call is. Right. But have we put them on a pedestal? Yeah, we've done it for very good reasons and honorable reasons, right? The urgency of the mission, the importance of winning people to Christ, to see the gospel go to every man, woman, and child in the world and every and preach in every language and every nation, and those are all good things. I'm ordained in the Christian Missionary Alliance. I mean, this is like, oh man, this is our You're thing. You're A.B. Simpson, ah, oh, faith yeah. mission. And, so it's, yeah. not a, it's not a bad drive to see that happen. Here's the difference. It's possible to make an idol out of mission because you make mission more important than the God who sends you on that mission. Mm. So what my call is to people is, number one, commune deeply with Christ. That's our highest calling. And then in your communion with Christ, with help from others, discern what is he calling me to do? And if he's calling you to be a missionary or a pastor, by all means, obey, go, do that thing. But if he's calling you to be a doctor or a writer or a mom or whatever it is, do that with the same passion and energy that you would missions. And recognize that whatever your master's called you to is worthy of your best energy, and it's worthy for the church to celebrate it. Mm-hmm. But what we tend to do is, and we can get into this, is, is take that prerogative of calling away from the Holy Spirit, and we take it upon ourselves. And so we stand up in the pulpit and say, every Christian, and I'm doing this wagging my mm-hmm. finger, every Christian should you know, do X. And then you feel guilty when you don't. And I think when leaders step into the role of issuing calls, we have infringed upon a, a, a prerogative that belongs to God alone. Nowhere in Scripture. And the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit. And we can get into examples of that, but I think we do that all the time. Well, what are some examples? Um, well, one of my favorites is at the end of John's Gospel, there's that wonderful scene after the resurrection where Jesus is cooking breakfast for his disciples on the beach mm-hmm. in, in Galilee. And that's where he gives Peter his calling. 
feed my sheep, tend my sheep. He says this a couple times to Peter. And then at the end of his call, uh, Jesus alludes to the fact that Peter will one day be martyred, that he'd be led where he doesn't want to go. And so Peter's hearing this call, and he's picking up on what Jesus is saying. He's probably not thrilled with this career plan that Jesus has for him. And so Peter looks down the beach, and he sees John. And he points at John and says, Lord, what about him? What's he going to do? What's he going to do? And Jesus' response is remarkable. He basically slaps Peter's hand and says, it's none of your business. If I want him to remain to the end, that's my business. You follow me. And I think what Jesus is doing there is he's taking upon himself his, his rightful role as Lord in determining the calling he has for his apostles, for his disciples, for each of his sheep. Mm-hmm. And in Peter's call, there's the call to feed his sheep, to tend his sheep, to care for Christ's sheep, but never to call his sheep. And the idea there is that Jesus is the one who's going to call each of us to the work he has. It's not my job to tell someone else what they're supposed to do for God. Now, I can come alongside and help them discern what he's calling them to do, but not call them themselves. The other one is in in Matthew 9. I love this text because we use it all the time in mission circles, where Jesus looks out upon the people and tells his disciples to pray for the that the Lord of the harvest would send out workers because the need is great. And it's interesting that Jesus does not call them to call workers into the harvest. He says, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out workers. So it's not our job to call people to be missionaries. It's our job to show them the need and to draw them into communion with God that he would call them. But we tend to jump over that step. Um, so is there a call to actually in all this uh, a more a, a devotional life? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I've, and that's what I wrote my last book about called With, Reimagining the Way We Relate to God. Uh, it, it's about exactly that, that the, the, the centerpiece of the Christian life is not what we are doing for God, but it's our communion with God. It's that highest calling piece. And so I feel my primary calling as a pastor or whenever I'm in the pulpit is to give people a ravishing vision of who God is and to draw them into communion with him and to teach them how to live in communion with him. As Paul says, to pray without ceasing. I don't think he's using hyperbole there, but to live in constant awareness of God's presence. Once that's in place and that's ongoing, I think we'll find people being more capable of discerning exactly what he's calling them to do um, and what he's calling them not to do. I think if we got the with piece right, we'd see a lot of people leaving ministry who realize they're not supposed to be there, who are only there because they're trying to be significant. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, you'd probably find other people going into ministry who are scared to go into it, but in their communion with Christ, they're hearing that call. So it's not about getting more people into one work or out of another. It's about getting everyone in the right spot, mm-hmm. the spot that the Lord is calling them to. So as we're talking today, Sky, I'm feeling like we're like a rope that's gotten wound up and it's like, okay, <laughs> we're in this place. You know, how do we let that rope go and unwind? Mm. I mean, where is your hope in all this for something that can be different and more of what Jesus wanted? Well, I think there's a couple positive things that are happening. That'll, not everyone may interpret them as positive. One is, I think that as the established church in America finds it increasingly difficult to reach the younger generation, they're going to be more introspective about their theology and about their assumptions, which I'm already beginning to see. Um, 
when it used to be you could just put up a building and get a dynamic speaker and have thousands of people flock in, no one really thinks much about what are we really saying, what are we communicating, what are we teaching. But as that becomes harder and harder to do, churches are beginning to think more reflectively about, well, what are we missing? What have we been spinning the wrong way? What have we been not teaching? So that's a good thing. Uh, challenging, but a good thing. The other side of it is, I think the bottleneck is always going to be leadership. Until church leaders come to an awareness of these issues and begin talking about them, both in their leadership meetings, in their small groups, in their discipleship meetings, and in the pulpit, it's going to be really hard to unwind that rope that you're talking about. So are you trying to do that at I Leadership Church? <laughs> yeah, that's, I hear a, a, I am. an agenda. <laughs> we did an issue earlier this year. The whole theme of that magazine was on callings. Um, honoring people in their specific callings. What does it mean for the pastor to not be calling people to the work of the church, but equipping people, equipping the saints to do the work that Christ has called them to do based on Ephesians 4? Uh, but I'll, I'll be honest with you, it's been hard. Well, it, I'm wondering what the reaction's been. It's been hard. The one reaction I get more often than not from pastors is, yeah, 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 we agree with, of course, the theology of vocation, but if we really teach it this way, then the work of the church is never going to get done. And wow. I try to respectfully disagree. Um, okay, I'll net it out a different way. It's hard to give up power. <laughs> yes, it is. It is and when you're in a hierarchical, you know, tradition or, or you know, framework in a, in ministry or in church, it's hard because it doesn't foster independence mm-hmm. and keeps people at a uh, less of an adult, more of a bled. I'm here to lead mm-hmm. you. You know, how do you turn that around? I mean, this. To me, I've, I feel a certain sadness. You have a whole host of, you know, pastors who yeah. are in this. You know, how, are, how can you lead them somewhere else? Well, I think part of it is changing our language a little bit. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, we've taken the language of corporate America and use that in the church. I think if we return to biblical language, mm-hmm. where, that frames the church more often as a household, we might get a better sense of how things are supposed to go. Think about the difference between a boss and an employee versus a parent and a child. I have three young children, and my goal ultimately is not to get them to stay home forever and do exactly what I want them to do. (laughs) My goal is to raise them into mature adults who are then sent out into the world to do something probably different than what I'm doing. So if the church views itself that way, then the role of the pastor, let's say a church father or mother, as Paul talks about honoring our elders as mothers and fathers, our goal then is to raise up these spiritual children not to do what I want as their boss, mm-hmm. but to grow them up to maturity, to discern where God is in their lives and what he's calling them to, and then send them out into the world to accomplish whatever specific calling he's given them, to be an artist, mm-hmm. to be in business, to be in the uh, government, whatever it might be. That model is very different than the corporation that says, these are employees that I'm going to hang on to and use to accomplish what I think needs to get done. Uh, Seth Godin talks, the blogger talks about, um, you know, the industrial age and Henry Ford getting an idea and then 50,000 people worked that idea. Right. You know. And that's what's dominated at least the evangelical church in America for the last number of decades. So that's a big shift that needs to happen is what are the voices we're listening to in the church? What are the language we're using? What models are we employing either explicitly or implicitly? And can we shift that? And honestly, I think that's and a little bit ironically, a much easier shift for a small church to make mm-hmm. than oh, for a big one. Yeah, I was thinking that. Because when you have a big machine to keep operating, yep. it's hard to release people. Yeah. So um, if most of the people listening to us today are not pastors mm-hmm. and they're in the pew, 
how can they begin to bring a shift in language and thought into their church, kind of work that bottom-up model? Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully they're in relationship with others in their church, whether in leadership roles or, or peer roles. And I think it, it's a, it simply begins when we honor one another. I was wondering if there was some like lateral oh, yeah. movement that yeah. needs to happen and then will be sort of a model. I think it can definitely happen, is honoring one another's callings. Uh, one of the things that shifted for me when I'm in the pulpit is I, when I'm planning a sermon, I'm thinking through um, often my wife, who, who spends most of her time right now at home with our kids and works minority of her time outside the home, but I'm thinking through how will this sermon um, honor a mom in our church who's primarily at home with her kids right now? Or how does it honor the, the person in our church who's in that sandwich generation, stuck between raising teenagers and helping elderly parents? You know, how is this going to honor the person who's unemployed right now? Mm-hmm. So in the people you're in relationship with in your church, how can you honor what God has called them to and bless them in it? I think it'd be great in a small group or in a men's Bible study or something. If there's a person in there who's unemployed and they get a job, even if it's not in their career area, we had a couple folks at our church who had roofing companies and they were employing unemployed folks in our church just to do roofing for a while. But when that person gets a job as a roofer, to come around, lay hands on that person, and ordain them in their work as a roofer. Not just to share their faith with a coworker, which would be great if it happened, but to say, build these roofs to the glory of God and know that your work matters for the kingdom. Or when school begins at the beginning of the year, to lay hands on students and teachers and administrators in your church community and bless them and honor them for the good God-honoring work that they're doing there, both as a witness of Christ in that often secular environment, but also realizing the very act of educating people about this world that God has created glorifies him, and it's a good thing. So it's definitely of, something peers can do there. It'd be interesting to have kind of a show-and-tell time, wouldn't it, in our, in our you know, church service where you know, people can get up and talk about their high, their low, where we get a peek into one another's mm-hmm. world. I mean, unless you're in a small group or have a specific friendships, you're you know, we don't really know mm-hmm. what other people, what their life is. That's right. You know, what's going on with them. And it's interesting just to hear you, Sky, stepping out of the pulpit full time and being in the pew and mm-hmm. how that's influenced you. So maybe that's another start as well. Yeah. If there you are know, pastors in the audience. Have you I'd... done an article on that yet? Encouraging pastors to take a week and visit people on the job? I haven't written it, but, <laughs> but I, I know that we have edited articles by folks in our magazine that um, have modeled that. Gordon McDonald is a great example. He writes for us in every issue, and he speaks all the time about getting out of the church and going into the workplaces of the people that he shepherds and how it shifts your perspective. Um, but at the, at, the, at the base of it, for both pastors and, and those of us who aren't pastors— Our vision of how God views us is going to determine the way we view others. So if we believe that God ultimately is concerned in just using me, then what we're going to do is take that perspective and shift it to the people we lead, and we're going to be interested in using them. So first and foremost, we have to come to the place of realizing that God's primary interest is not using me. He wants to be with me. He he loves me for who I am, not just for what I can do. The world will function just fine without me. He can handle it. And once we get our identity grounded in our communion with Christ, then we can begin to love and honor people in our community, in our homes, in our churches that we lead, not for what they do, but for the fact that they are 
created in the image of God, redeemed by his son, filled with his spirit, and called with the specific work he's given them so that their significance isn't just what are they doing for me in the church. That's where it begins, both individually and for church leaders, is how do I think God views me so that I can view others that same way. That's Sky Jathani. Sky speaks regularly at churches, conferences, colleges, and retreats, both in the U.S. and internationally. He's been invited to speak at events like Q and Catalyst. The topics he likes to address are wide-ranging. Faith and consumerism, leadership, interfaith cooperation, spiritual formation, global mission, church trends, Christianity and politics, biblical justice, faith and vocation, and common good Christianity. Sky's written two books, The Divine Commodity, Discovering a Faith Beyond Consumer Christianity, and With, Reimagining the Way You Relate to God. We're giving away copies of that book this week. Look for details at bringtomind.org or on our Facebook page at BTM Podcast. Sky's latest book, Futureville, will be released in the fall of 2013. We'll post additional material and resources around today's topic of vocation on our homepage, bringtomind.org. I'm Melinda Schmidt for Bring to Mind. Josh Kloss is our producer. Each week, we look for topics of faith that stretch us. You can listen to past podcasts at bringtomind.org.